if I say the word Kabbalah, it's a good way to start. We're gonna, this will be our, 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 our entree. So I want you guys to, to, to embrace the fact that nobody understands Kabbalah. Nobody gets it. There are scholars of Kabbalah that can expound on Kabbalah, but they don't quite get it. The Kabbalah Center doesn't have it. B'nai Baruch doesn't have it. I don't have it. Nobody has it. In other words, the, you can read as many books as you want, sit on many mountaintops, but what's happening between two human beings is still a mystery. What's happening between a mother and her child is a mystery. What happens when we listen to good music, it's all mystery. So we have to approach this, all of this with a bit of humility. Okay, so if you don't think you're going to get it, right, you're in the same boat with a lot of people, one. Two, um, most mystical conversations are conversations that are actually much more normal than you would imagine, but it's using language in a way that you might not normally use it. So if I ask you, you know, about the relationship between the one and the many, did I lose everybody? Right? So the one and the many. Let's say you're in a philosophy course and they start talking about the, the relationship between the one and the many. Right? So you say, well, I don't, that's not my normal conversation. I'm usually waking up in the morning, I have NPR on, I have my cup of coffee. I'm not really interested in the one and the many. Right? But many of you here are, can appreciate great music. Many of you here appreciate great art. Many of you here are, are I, I'm assuming, you're very, very bright people. And when that, when that language obfuscates the real discourse, it's essentially what always happens when it comes to mysticism, is that they use language in a way that, that isn't, uh, doesn't fit our normal frame of reference, and we say, we give up, we say, oh, that's really esoteric, right? But the relationship between the one and the many, just to choose a random mystical subject, is a conversation between ground and foreground. It's a conversation between um, the self and all of its parts, and something indissoluble, indivisible that each and every one of us has that we call the soul, right, that lives on. So you already know about the one and the many. You already know about conversations between concealment and revelation. All these things are part of, of a normal, healthy way of engaging the world. And if you're even remotely conscious, you're already thinking about mystical things, but you don't label it as such. So I just wanted to put that out as, as the second thing. The first thing is to be humble. The second thing to know is that most often language is the problem and not the content. And the third thing I want to say is, um, you know, it's kind of related to the humility piece, but it's a little bit more like, like, if how many people here are thinking, wow, I, I don't know enough about Judaism. I, I'm a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit nervous. So if that's your thought, right, just like own it in here, throw it into the middle of the room and we're just going to let it go because um, if, if you don't get it, it means that I didn't teach it well. Right? So you, you, all you have to do now is to be actively receptive. Not passive, but actively receptive to listening and to engaging the, 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 what we're about to discuss. And if you don't get it, say I don't get it. Don't, please don't in this class like say, it must be me. And I'll just go home and look it up on Wikipedia, or I'll just, you know, I'll just assume that the class isn't for me, or Judaism is... Just let me do my job, and you guys just actively engage. If you don't get something, ask me to explain it again, okay? So I agree? Do we get that? Okay, so let's come back to the one and the many. The one and the many is the most basic philosophical question um, that has plagued Western philosophy, and Western and Eastern mysticism from 
as far back as we can, as, as we know. The relation between the one and the many. How is it that we can have a conversation about an experience of unity or even a postulation of unity? Let's say you never experienced God as unity. You, don't, you never experienced God, period. You don't know anything from this unity. I don't know from unity. We have unity, shmunity, I don't know unity. But we say Adonai Echad. Shema Yisrael Adonai Lehinu Adonai Echad, right? God is one. And let's say you ask, well, what do you mean by that oneness? Is it one in, as the Zohar says, one in a series of numbers? God is one, but other nations have two gods. We have one God. We only direct our prayers to one location, one being, right? Is that one? Or is it oneness, unity? Is it this experience of radical... Um, let's say non-differentiation right? where everything is one right? we say ah it's all one right? it's all one and if it's the second meaning it's not God as one being amongst many beings but, and not even a being but being itself and that that being as the philosopher as Rambam said very clearly Maimonides said that being is one everything that we associate with separation is unified within that beingness, right? We have a will. I am and have a will. I have a mind. I have desire. I have a body. All of those things that I have in God are unified in that divine being. Then what does many or plurality mean in, the, in, in relation to that one? Or to put it simply, how can the many come from the one and the one remain one? Good question, right? Right? Isn't the reality as we touch it, isn't the reality that we see with our senses itself a re- a, an evidential rejection of the assertion of God's unity, if that unity is meant to mean in, you know, the ocean of being that is undifferentiated, if that is your definition? You might not have that definition, right? But we do have that definition, so that's a problem. How is it that there is anything at all. And how does that anything or everything relate or interact with that oneness? That's the problem. Without it compromising the oneness. Everybody get that so far? (laughs) So the Kabbalah and Judaism in general begin with the assumption of unity and then move to the possibility of differentiation. In most, most of us work the other way around. Like, this is real. Right? And let's talk about whether God exists. But in Kabbalah, they, they don't have any, there are no proofs for God's existence in Kabbalah. Maybe I should say what Kabbalah is first. Kabbalah is the, the term that began in about the 12th century in Provence, in France, to be used to describe the body of Jewish esoteric or mystical wisdom. Before that, Kabbalah didn't refer to that. It referred to anything that was received. But it became the Kabbalah. And there isn't one Kabbalah. Right? If you go to the Kabbalah Center, if you go to the B'nai Baruch, you go to this place, they say there's only one Kabbalah. Right? It's the Kabbalah of, of Ashlag, of, of the Sulam, the, but it's not the case. There are many schools of Kabbalah, but all of them, all of the schools of Kabbalah are bothered by the problem of the relationship between the one and the many. 
That's a fundamental problem. To put it another way, how many people here are stubborn? You have to admit to wow, seriously, you don't have to admit. I can put it, right. You can do it silently. Right. So, so, stubborn, stubborn people. So, the question is, if God is stubborn, if one of God's attributes is being stubborn, it would relate to the desire that God has not to change. That's what stubborn means. I don't change. I refuse to give in. And God's unity... God's absolute radical transcendence of anything created. Did everybody get that sentence? God's absolute radical transcendence of anything created is a kind of stubbornness. Meaning, I refuse to change form in any way. I'm impenetrable. I'm completely self-contained. I'm God. Nothing moves. Nothing changes. In other words, change implies time and space. And God isn't of those things. Right? So how does God relate with that which is of time and space? How does God's stubbornness move with the reality of that which fluctuates and moves and is different? Right? That's a qu- I'll come back to that because that relates to this week's Torah portion in a very deep way. God's stubbornness. Because each of us also has the same aspect of God that doesn't change. And we also have the other aspect of God that changes. So far, so good? Yes. Diane. But if God is everything, how can God be removed from time and space and not of time and space? Absolutely good question. So, that is um, the flip side of the problem, meaning, is God's perfection, how do we define perfection, right? If perfection means, as the Greeks said, that something that doesn't change, then God's perfection excludes God's entering to time and space. God can't, by definition. God is perfect. It would be a logical contradiction. God can't incarnate. Right? You can hear the Christological piece there. You can, you're almost now taken back to Spain, and there's like a, a table with a rabbi and a priest, and they're having an argument at the auto de fe. God can't become a person, so and so. So, God... Um, God does become the many, but in order to maintain the purity of God's transcendence, we have to introduce a third element. And you'll see that in a moment, because that's what we want to talk about, which is the spherot. So God can't become the many in purely, without remainder, because then that would, uh, that would um, for the mystics of the Kabbalah, that would... That would compromise God's pure transcendence. Does that mean God gets old? Does that mean God get, becomes young? Is God born? Is God, right? So there, it becomes, you can see it's a very thorny theological, philosophical problem, right? If there's a place where God isn't, then that limits God. If there's a place that God, right? If God is everything, right? Let's start from the beginning. God is a being. Nobody has a problem with that. God has uh, it's God is Hashem. God is the one we say good morning to, the one we pray to, the God we ask for forgiveness. God has no smell, no, no bodily dimensions, but God just is. God is being. Don't ask me any other questions, right? That's like, <laughs> like, like, let's stop there, right? Like, it's turtles all the way down. Let's just stop right there. We'll just keep it simple the way it was when I was a kid. There's the Abish to Helfen. 
The Abishta, right? It's the Abishta. God is the Abishta. It's Yiddish for God. It's very sweet. Okay, so scratch a little bit deeper. What, what does that mean? What is God? What are the essential core attributes of God? God is beyond time and space. God is, right? And so on and so forth. So long ago, uh, Maimonides recognized that if you go down the road of saying God is something, you're already, you're going to go off the cliff really quickly. Right? So better he said to say what God isn't, what he called the via negativa, the way of no, which in the East also has its expression in, in India with neti neti, right? Not this, not that. Right? God is not this, not that. That way you kind of avoid some of the problems of, of, of positive ascription. So let's say you avoid it like the Ramam said. God's not bound by time. God is not... Okay, great. Then what are you left with? You're left with a God that is purely transcendent, not of this world. And that seems to be a limitation as well. Does that mean God can't be? God... So there has to be a relation between God uh, as pure, transcendent, some uh, whatever, no, no term, whatever it is, and the stuff of this world, and still maintain God's radical, not complete identification with this world. There has to be something beyond. So for the Kabbalah, the way to get out of this thorny problem is to introduce an intermediate system called the Sfirot. If you look on the first page in the handout, Now, the Svirot are a way of creating Turn to the second page in your handout. This is from Moshe Cordovero. He's a 16th century Kabbalist living in Tzvat, in northern Israel. From, originally from Cordoba. Moshe Cordovero. Moshe Cordovero from Cordoba. Um, he writes where it says water, light, and colors. Yeah, you see that? Anybody want to read that super loud? Uh, I'll read it. In the beginning, Ainsov created, emanated rather, ten spherot, water, light, and colors. Right, you see that? Water, light, and colors. It should be on the back of the second page. Everybody see it? In the beginning, Ain't Soap emanated tense Spirot, which are of its essence, united with it. It and they are entirely one. Okay, time out. What does Ain't Soap mean? Ain't Soap is the Kabbalistic term which means? Nothing. Not nothingness, but it's close. Ain means nothing, but Soap. What is Soap? Without end. So everybody get that? That's your first Kabbalah. If you, anybody get that, raise your hand if you got that. Ain't self means infinite one, without end. You're all Kabbalists right now. Okay? Ain't self is the way that we talk about God in the Kabbalah. Ain't self means without end. It's, it, you can hear Rambam in there, Maimonides, the one who said that you shouldn't say positive things, but negative. Ain't self is a negative. God is without end. Right? doesn't say he's without beginning. That's a whole other thing. What, without end. Without end. The one without end. Okay? Ain't so, another way of saying God. It and they are entirely one. Alright, there's no change, go on. 
There is no change or division in the emanator that would justify saying it is divided into parts in these various sefirot. Division and change do not apply to it, only to the external sefirot. So what problem is he trying to avoid here, everybody? 16th century Kabbalist who's trying to explain the intermediary function of these things that you were just introduced to three minutes ago called the Sefirot, which are the way that God as the undivided, indivisible one, Ein Sof, interacts with a world or creates a world that is clearly with end and with all kinds of dividable, indivisible things. So what, what does he want to make sure that we know? That the Sefirot are... Right? So, so God and the Sefirot here are, seem to be one, but in a way, they, they use a metaphor of, of the fire within a coal. The fire inside of a coal is the coal, but it's also not the coal. There's a, a quality of this emanation, this othering, that God emanates these intermediaries that are going to serve as the way of interacting with the world. They're called the Sefirot. What does emanate mean? Yeah, great. So emanate is a very clearly neo-Plotinus. Uh, it's a neo-Plotinian idea. Plotinus was a great neo-Platonic philosopher. And Plotinus said that the way that the world came into being was is that the great force of being overflowed or emanated, like a sun emanates rays or like a, a water... Um, uh, a geyser, what's, what are those called? Geyser. Geyser. A geyser, that, that it just, the nature of the being itself is to flow, and that we are emanations of that great being's natural impulse to move from point A to point B. So it, it's not about will, the way that God works is that God flows, or that original ain't so flows, and that the spherot are the emanations, or are the outgrowth of that great divine yearning for uh, to, for self-expression, for self-unfolding. It's like a giving off. It's a giving off. Almost like, uh, often, um, I've seen people give this example, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but at a fountain, at a lot of uh, homes now, and I, it's kind of become the rage in the past uh, two decades, uh, since I was in yeshiva, for Kiddush, on, on Friday night when people make Kiddush, when they make the blessing of the wine, they have these funky-looking trays, right? Yeah, yeah. Where they like, if people see these things, like you pour the wine from the big cup, and it goes through the top, and then it starts to pour out to the small, and then it goes to the, they're like three, three levels, you know, with these little cups. And each one is getting like, and by the time you get to the last level, those lowest guys, there's not that much left coming out. Um, but the higher ones, and that's exactly the way in the 16th and the 15th, 16th century, they actually describe these things called the spherot. They're like these, that God's light is emanating, and it's, it's uh, and because that's what it does, God's light emanates, that there's this source, and the source is on, that's what it means to be the source, is that you're on, right, you can't, it doesn't get turned off, um, and it's before time, so that's kind of a brain teaser, but the flow happens to the sirot, right, and they are the vessels, they are literally the first vessels to receive that light, so that by the time this world manifests, it is essentially the place where the, which receives the least amount of that original outpouring or emanation, but that itself is 
what allows for its separate existence. So another way to look at these, these firot are as veils. That God's light is being veiled at each successive level so that this world can be, because were God's light not being veiled, in other words, if the amount of, of grape juice, <laughs> such a great example, the amount of grape juice uh, at the first level would not allow for there to be a separate vessel. A great image uh, that is used in the Kabbalah is, uh, it's found in the Gemara in Chulin, Shraga B'tihara Mai Mahane. It's, what use is a candlelight in the mid, uh, middle of the day next to the sun? Imagine like putting up a candle right next to the sun in the middle of a, of a hot summer's day. It's useless. So the, the first levels of these vessels or veils, are so saturated by God's effulgence that they are almost obliterated to some degree. Like, the, this world is the result of God's obfuscation. We're, I'll get to that in a second. So, were it not for God's hiddenness, we would not be revealed. That's the way that they resolve this. Is that... The svirot, whatever those things are, are necessary as intermediate vessels that both conceal God's light, but also will reveal God's light if used appropriately. Now, the word svirah has a, a long history. It means just, um, I'm just going to, I'll footnote it and say that um, it appears in this usage um, in the Sefer Yitzira, in the book of Yitzira, in the 6th century. And it seems to be a Pythagorean notion that the world is, uh, God's light is channeled through the numbers, the sfirot, or numbers, mispar, and that the ten digits of, the, of, of math are the ultimate building blocks of all creation, and that that works then into a more sophisticated form of these ten, uh, these ten vessels, these ten energies, these ten veils, these ten faces of God that are holding and concealing and revealing God's light simultaneously. So these ten energies, it's much easier to call them energies, because then you don't really have to explain it. You say, like, energies, these ten energies are the building blocks of all Kabbalistic creation. The ten, there are ten commandments, and they reflect the ten, these ten energies. There are ten fingers and toes. Those are reflections of this primal energy. There are ten utterances with which the world was created in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, and God said, let there be, and God said, and of course those are also paralleling and, uh, and are, are uh, being pulled through, or refracted through the prism of these ten energies. And the ten, these ten energies are also participating in the body. They are mapped onto the body in various ways that will go through and they are mapped onto biblical personae. Different biblical people are embodying these energies in a, in, a, in a certain way. And so these svirot are the most important pieces of your Kabbalistic, like, you know, toolkit. Like, what is happening with these svirot? They are sometimes known as, even though there are ten, they're divided into three and seven, the upper three and the lower seven. The lower seven, of course, corresponding to the seven days of the week. Right, and so on and so forth. Okay, did I lose anybody so far? All my Kabbalists? Okay, let's go a little bit more into Moshe Cordovero. Let's see what he has to say, and then we'll come back to Rachel's uh, question. 
and then we're going to talk a little bit about Shabbos. Okay? All right. To help you conceive this, imagine water flowing through vessels of different colors, white, red, green, and so forth. As the water spreads through these vessels, it appears to change into the colors of the vessels, although the water is devoid of all color. The change in color does not affect the water itself, just our perception of the water. Okay, so what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that the water is who, or whom, or what? What's the water? Emanation, which is? God, which is in Kabbalah, in Kabbalese? Ain't Sof. Got to get used to saying it. Ain't Sof. Ain't Sof. And Ain't Sof is the, is the water. Water has no color of its own. It is, it will take on the color of the vessels. Right? So the vessels are green or red or yellow, or let's call them, in the terminology of Kabbalah, Chesed, Givurah, Tish Eret, Netzach, Hod, Yesod, these seven or, or ten different Sefirot, Chach, Mabina, each one of them, it has a, its own distinct quality, but God's light doesn't change. Okay? I can already see, like, it, there are so many problems with this theory, just in terms of getting it exactly right. Right? right? There are so many things you can ask. Like, for example, um, how did those vessels have a separate existence? Right? What, what, what was necessary to create those separate vessels? Right? And where do they get their qualities from? Uh, are, they, are, are those qualities changing or not changing? Who emanated those and so on? Just take part of this as just like axiomatic. Because a lot of it is. It's just like a system and he's mapping it. Okay, so let's move on. Chesed, Gevura. So it is with the Sephirah. They are vessels known, for example, as Chesed, Gevura, and Tiferet, each colored according to its function, white, red, and green, respectively while the light of the emanator, their essence, is the water having no color at all. This essence does not change, it only appears to change as it flows through the vessels. Now watch what happens here. He just gave us the same analogy that I gave with the Kiddush cup. He gave it with, with water pouring from one place to another. Now, you think that someone like this, who has, um, you know, we're talking about some spiritual geniuses here. They don't really need to write another paragraph. So, it's so clear that it's hard to explain this stuff. Because watch what he does next. He just gave you a really good metaphor, right? Pretty good. Water, vessels, different colors, like, you know. But he's not done. What does he have to say? Better yet. Better yet. I have an even better one for you. And he's speaking to all of us at 8 o'clock on a Tuesday night after a long day, talking about mystical things. He's like, let me give you an even better metaphor. I know that you might get confused about the water, the colors. Here's a better one. Imagine a ray of sunlight shining through a stained glass window of ten different colors. The sunlight possesses no color at all, but appears to change hue as it passes through the different colors of glass. Colored light radiates to the window. The light has not essentially changed, though it, so it seems to the viewer. Just so with the spirot. The light that clothes itself in the vessels of the spirot is the essence, like the ray of sunlight. That essence does not change color at all, neither judgment nor compassion, neither right nor left. Yet by emanating through the Sephirot, the variegated stained glass, judgment or compassion prevails. Let's turn back to the front page, to the, to the diagram. Now imagine, on, the, on this thing is called the Sphirotic Tree. Um, I know, it's like a, it's a fun... So Sphirotic um, is an actual word, you know. These are the Sphirot mapped onto a, in a linear form. Sometimes known as the inverted tree, because trees grow... Their roots are on the bottom, 
and they grow, their branches are moving this way, and in this image, the roots are in heaven, and the branches are here below, right? So the roots being God, so to speak, using this kind of, yeah, everybody with me? So this tree, which you'll see in almost every book on Kabbalah, has the name of these ten energies. There are ten vibrations, ten energies, ten moments, ten stories, ten narratives, ten uh, stages of an unfolding, each one distinct but connected to the one that comes after it. Ten of these portals, uh, or cups, or stained glass window panes, whatever is your metaphor, with the that which doesn't change, the sun being uh, near the word introduction. You see that? On the side, that's, that's God. Goddess, whatever. Emanator, being, it, being itself. Um, nirvakalpa, samadhi, nirvana, whatever you want to call it. We all call it by different names. But it's the thing. And then, there's the first level is called Keter. The crown. Second level on the right is called Chokmah. Third level is called Bina. Those are called the three upper Sifirot because they're, uh, the, they're the upper triad. The Keter is it's almost like God. It's, it's so close to God, it's not even considered its own vessel, but it, but it's, but it is. It is ambivalent. Keter is a pivot point between being and non-being. Chokhmah is known as wisdom or intuition. It's the seed of something before it's, be, it's been given any, uh, any, any of its own flesh. It's an idea before it's, before it's linguistic. It's a flash. It's, um, it's preliminary, it's preverbal, it's precognitive, it's, pre, it's preverbal. It's a kind of precognition, it's an intuition. Bina is the next stage. It's the, it is the, very much the, the left brain. It's words and gestation and things that, that begin fleshed out. It's known as the upper mother, as if you needed another one. It's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's the place where, where things are born. Right? It's, it's the womb of creation. It's Rosh Hashanah. I'm not going to get into all of these associates. You can see the symbol set, the symbolism. You could go on and on. There's so many symbols, uh, clusters, you know, of these symbols uh, that are broken. Things are just piled into these, these different baskets. Like Bina is many things. It's not just one thing. But psychologically it means one thing. In the, in the Jewish ear it means another. And so on. Do you get that? And then you have the lower seven from Chesed all the way down to Shekhinah. Right? And the last one the Shekhinah is the most... I'm not going to go through all the six. I just want to go straight to, to Shekhinah because it's Shabbat. Shekhinah, as the last of these emanations, the last vessel, the last pane of glass, so on and so forth, it's, the shchi, the, it's really called Malchut. Malchus, kingship. That's the technical term for the last Sefirah. But it's always, always, always associated with this thing called sh- the Shekhinah. Or some people say Shekhinah. Shekhinah, right? You see that? <coughs> Shekhinah is, ma- is radical manifestation. It is 
the apotheosis of Keter. It is the opposite, on the opposite, opposite end of what Keter is. Keter is the, the most subtle of the vessels because it's still coterminous with God. It arise, co-arises with God. And Shekhinah is this. This is Shekhinah. This whole thing. This whole world is Shekhinah. This whole thing. And of course, if you're a Hebrew buff, you know that Shekhinah is effeminate. It means, in the language of the Zohar, that is God's wife. It is the feminine aspect of God manifest in matter, in, the, in Mother Earth, in this Earth. So all of the variegated plura, plura, pluralism or, or, or uh, manyness of this world, is, it comes under the rubric of Shekhinah, right? which literally means that which inheres, or that which dwells within. So just to follow this, and I'll get to, to all your questions, okay? Just to follow this, and not fall asleep, because I know it's hard, but it's Kabbalah Cafe. Cafe. <laughs> The easiest way to think about this, I think, easier than, than the metaphor of the grape juice, the metaphor of the water, or the metaphor of the, of the stained glass windows, is, is psychologically. So, who is really you? Is it your name? Is it your body? Is it your personality? Is it the tapes in your head? Is it your... What, what was there before you were born, and what will be there after you're born, after you die? Right? So your neshama, your soul. So the soul is to the body as the ein sof is to this world. That's what the Talmud says. Just as we know that the soul exists, but we can't see it or f- taste it, so God is, exists, but we don't see God and we don't taste God. Right? So the self, and I mean that the highest self, is absolutely undifferentiated. It doesn't have your name. Like, it's funny when people say, who's the real David Ingber? I say, there is no real David Ingber. Because David Ingber is just my name. If you want to know who the real one in me is, don't ask me who the real, what the real, there is no real David Ingber. That's a joke. Because everything that is David Ingber was born. If you want to know what the real me is, it wasn't born. And it's, it's with me when, when David Ingber is sleeping at night, that real one is the one that's talking to me and giving me impressions and, and dreams and intuitions. That's not David Ingber. And for that matter, it's not different than everybody else. My drop in the ocean is the same as your drop. Just one big drop. And that's... Um, so God is that same undifferentiated, indissoluble stuff. And then it gets put into a right arm, a left arm, a heart, a personality, a story, a beginning, a middle, and an end. All that stuff is the stuff of the Sfirot, right? So here's this universe, and after all of these veils, successive, 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 we have a world of Shekhinah everywhere, where God seems to be hidden completely. That's the reality of the, that's the one-to-the-many movement in the Kabbalah, and what's interesting is, if you look at the last seven Svirot, or the seven Svirot, I said there are three and then there are seven. The seven Svirot themselves parallel the seven days of the week. And Shekhinah is Shabbat. Shekhinah is Shabbat. Because the purpose of creation 
The purpose of creation, this comes back to something that was said earlier, the purpose of creation was to, for God to be transparent in matter. What Tyre de Chardin called the divinization of this world. That the purpose of creation is for everything in this world to be elevated and through holiness or be transparent to, uh, to the sacred dimension. That not to be seen as something other than the sacred dimension. Shekhinah or Shabbat is that, right? Shekhinah is that in time. I'm going to stop there. A lot of ideas. Rachel, you were waiting. Much larger question. How was it that Rachel's asking? How was it that that the Neoplatonic, it's really it's Neoplatonic, uh, Plotinian ideas were so amenable to it being adapted by the by the Jews, uh, given that they weren't working with the same assumptions about the world and so on. The reciprocity between the the Kabbalistic impulse. Um, to explain unity and, and multiplicity was the same as, the, as, as Plotinus's problem. Plotinus was a mystic. He had very, very deep visions. Uh, Plotinus was, was a genius of the highest order. What was his religion? Uh, he, was a, he was a Platonic. He, was, he emerged from the... From, he didn't have a religion per se, but he emerged... He was a contemplative. Okay. He was I, a contemplative. Yeah. So you, by the way, by the way, this is not a different problem than Plato's shadows in the cave. It's not a new problem, right? For for in the in Plato in in the, in, in in the Platonic cave, the the sun and the shadows in the cave are themselves the problem. It's a, it's a very deeply Western problem, but it's not unique to the West. If you read the beginning of the Tao Te Ching, which is not a Western uh, treatise, he says the Tao that can be spoken of is not the eternal Tao. What the hell is he talking about, right? He's saying that there's an Ein Sof that we can't talk about. Wow. Right? There's Ein Sof. We call it the Tao that can't be spoken of. Right? In Tai Chi, it's this moment before you move. It's undifferentiated. It's called Wu Wei. It's like absolute stillness, right? There's nothing moving, right? In, in Greek philosophy, movement itself was a lower form of perfection. Things that didn't move were more perfect than things that moved. So here you are in the most perfect state of, of Wu Wei. It's undifferentiated, unconditioned. Nothing's going on. So you could stay like this forever. Yes. In fact, you should stay like this forever. Right? Well, th- that's, that's an even bigger problem than the one and the many is why would the one even want the many? <coughs> right? What's the, how did the one come from its own self-contemplation into this? What was that? So in Tai Chi, it's just like, it's just a movement from this to this. You pick up your heel, and you're now in differentiation. You went from undifferentiated now to differentiated, right? And then you're, now there's yin and yang already. There's yang here and yin here. It's all the two begins, which is why the Torah begins with a bet. 
Right, because this is what's happening before the Torah starts. It's just like this. God contemplating God's navel. And the way that the Jews talk about that moment when it happened was God wanted relationship. And then you say, why did God want relationship? Can't ask a question about desire. That's the way the Kabbalists talk. They say, can't ask a question about desire. Desire is what it is. Right? So where the, 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 the Greeks and, the, and Plato and, and Plotinus, they had a problem explaining how the one, their way out of that was by saying that God just by nature wants to move. That's the, you can't ask that question either. God just moves. That's the way it happens. Would you say, no, 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 it wasn't about that. From, from nothingness to somethingness, or to the spherot and then the world, was a moment of divine desire arose. Ratzon, desire for the world for relationship, for other. That's why um, when Heschel wrote his very Kabbalistic book that wasn't known as Kabbalah, he wrote it as God in search of man. Because God wanted human beings. Like that's the primordial impulse, God or nothingness in search of somethingness. The movement from, um, the movement from aloneness to relationship is the way that the Jews talk about it in humanistic terms. Right? Every relationship it's, by the way, by the way, this is why whenever we, in every chuppah, in every marriage, every marriage, the themes under the chuppah have to do with the creation of the world. It's like, if anybody, like, have you been to, a, like, a Jewish wedding ceremony? It's like, it's like, what does that have to do with these two, like, these two people? Like, every image in a Jewish wedding ceremony is about the creation of the world, because, Kabbalistically, every time two people meet, it's as if the world, exactly where God was right before the world began. And then the world starts, and you're like, oh, that's the point of the world, this relationship. It's meeting each other, right? It's intense, right? It's a, it's a powerful thing. So this movement um, is, is very different than Christianity. I just want to say this at this moment. It's a very different approach. It's not that there aren't things that are very, very similar, but this moment of, right, God doesn't create the world... Um, God creates the world out of love, which, is, which actually is in Christianity too, right? But God's incarnation is for suffering and so on, to relieve sin. But here, it's God, the world is itself the product of a, a moment of, of inexplicable divine love that then sets in motion all of these, these uh, svirot. And the culmination of that is Shabbat. Shabbat is sof ma'aseh b'mach Shabbat chila. Shabbat is the... Um, the most important uh, vehicle for that love's expression in the world is Shabbat. And I'll stop right there. Yeah, I, I, there's more, but I'll stop right there. I hope this question makes sense, let alone the answer. Can you comment a little bit? Everything that you've described, when you got to Shekinah and talked about it being the feminine why even assign that? How did that come about that there was a, a, a feminine or a masculine in the, in the divine? In, in this concept well, of how you're describing well, God here's, as being... Here's the problem. Is that the problem is that, that Judaism has a, a male God. That's a big problem. That's the question, yes. Right. So God in the Bible, and again, the Bible predates Kabbalah. Right? The Bible is, is written well before the Kabbalah, right, well before. 
So the question is not why is there a feminine guy, why have any sexual uh, uh, orientation at all, or uh, it, well, the, the sexual orientation is heterosexual, but the have, have any gender ascribed to God? It's actually uh, a great equalizer. It's a very powerful moment in Jewish history when God became woman and God had a wife. And that, not only that, in, in Kabbalah, and this is something else for all of you Kabbalists in training here tonight, it's not just that God creates the world with these ten svirot. It's that the relationship between the svirot is the, the rules by which the game is played. When the svirot are in harmony, the world is balanced. When the svirot are out of alignment, then the, the world is out of alignment for the Kabbalists. So one of the ways that the Sfirot are aligned is when there is a relationship between the Divine Masculine and Divine Feminine, and those are united in human beings and united within God, and then uh, the world is full again. Bounty comes to the world. So in Kabbalah, it's the sexual coupling between God as masculine and God as feminine that brings flow into the world and creates a, a, a well-lubricated world. And it's, it's starkly sexual imagery. Um, uh, liquids and waters and, and male first, woman first, male f- front and back. It's the whole, in, in the Zohar, it's, it's shocking if you've never read Kabbalah this way, how beautifully erotic it is. And erotic in the much broader sense than sexual, but like that the whole universe is teeming with these couplings and these separations all the time. Right? So it's all there in the Kabbalah, and it happens with the Sfirot. So Shabbat, the actual day of Shabbat, of course, you know, it's not a joke, that that was a day of, of the great mitzvah, of having sex, uh, couples having sex. It was, Shabbat was the mitzvah day. Because what was happening here on earth was being reenacted above, and what happened below, so below, as, as below, so above. So this, uh, the androgyny of God is a, is a core principle of Kabbalah, the androgyny of God. Not the non-gendered, but the androgyny, yeah, which, which makes it really beautiful. So that's, let's like stop right there, okay? Are we all good? Anybody still, anybody missing something? Okay, so one core principle here that you can walk away with is this. If you never, if you never come back to this class ever again, and you might not, I don't know, uh, what I, what, one core principle that I want you to walk with is this. That in Kabbalah, you could reduce the entire Kabbalah to one sentence. Or this Kabbalah. It's to one sentence. Everything is about light and vessels. Everything. And vessels attract light. So if you wanted like an operational Kabbalistic like fortune cookie... Like, you know, which is not a bad idea. Like, if you ever had a restaurant in the shul, we'd have, like, little fortune cookies that were based on Kabbalistic aphorisms. Like, so, so here's, like, here's an interesting... You can patent that. Here's your, here's your, you know, in your rugalach. You can take this one, okay? Kabbalah to go. Okay? Here's what you would have. There are lights and there are vessels. And vessels attract light. Another way of saying that is, if you build it, they will come. If you build it, they will come. That's a core principle of Kabbalah that's taken straight from a movie, I know, 
but it, but it's it's a core uh, archetype that if you build it, it will attract. Right. So, and and like all things in the universe, there are no rules without exceptions. That's that has no exceptions. There are no rules without exceptions. So yeah, you'll say I can build it. Okay, but but it's a, it's a axiomatic. I was thinking about this in terms of the shul recently because, um, for example, if you want, if our shul now has roughly 400 to 500 people on a Friday night, but it's overflow on the bottom and it's full, and uh, but it, it usually is, it, that's about the number that we, we've had for the last two years. And people have been wondering, you know, what's going on? I said, you know what I said? I think it's true. Is that we don't really have room for 600 people to, to be comfortable in our synagogue yet. So we're not, I don't think we'll get that until it's possible. Because we don't, there's no vessel there, and it, there's no vessel to hold it, so then the light's not there. So, you know, it's like you go to a yoga class and they say, set an intention, and then fill the intention. It's a very powerful idea, and it's not powerful because it always is true, and it's not set any intention. Right, your intention is I'm going to have, uh, I don't know, I'm going to be the president of the United States, or I'm going to be in the NBA. It's not realistic. Like that, that's called breaking the vessels. We're not going to talk about that today. But if you, if you, if your vessels aren't strong enough, for whatever reason, because they're too hard or too soft, then the light will break it. You have to be really careful that you create, you build a vessel that will then generate an attraction. Um, but that's the rule that that's operative here in this notion of of the sphero is that God builds the vessels, and the vessels then attract the light, and that that light is, um, it, that's, that's, that's the way it works. So Shabbat is the most important vessel in, in Judaism. Barring none. Yom Kippur is called Shabbat Shabbaton, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Every seventh year in ancient Israel, there was a year when we're, there was no working of the land that was called Shemitah. That was also called Sabbath. Sabbath is Everything is spinning around Shabbat because it is the last sphira and it attracts the most light. It attracts the most light. So, okay, time out. How's it going? Okay, now. So Shabbat, Shabbat is the last of the of the svirot, the last of the vessels, the last of those veils. It is the point in in the in the unfolding of God from nothing to something, where God is most hidden. God is most hidden, and for that reason, Shabbat becomes the the place in the Jewish calendar every week where we try to disclose spirituality within physicality. But Shabbat is the day for the disclosure or the unveiling of the sacred within the dimension of the secular. So Shabbat is, for example, and by the way, I don't mean here, I don't mean Shabbat the way that I grew up with it necessarily, although that's also beautiful. You know, Shabbat, there's something about Shabbat 
that is um, very powerful. So here, so I'm going to just begin because we're going to spend a lot of time on. This. We're going to look at original sources, what Shabbat was, and so on. But here, let's look at this. The last, last, last uh, source. Okay. If you open. Um, These, are, these three sources are all from the Cook, the great chief rabbi of Palestine. They're on page 152, living in the material, the material world. We constantly aspire. 152. Yes, yeah, very back. Look, you can you can look on your own to the raising of the sparks. You might not know what that is if you've never been here before. Um, but look at everything aspires. We cannot identify the abundant vitality within all living beings, from the smallest to the largest, nor the hidden vitality enfolded within inanimate creation. Everything constantly is flowing, flows, vibrates, and aspires. Nor can we estimate our own inner abundance. Our inner world is sealed and concealed, linked to a hidden something, a world that is not our own world, not yet perceived or probed. Everything teems with richness. Everything aspires to Trent, to ascend and be purified. Everything sings, celebrates, serves, develops, evolves, uplifts, and aspires to be arranged in oneness. This entire piece from Rav Kook, I should bring it next week in the Hebrew, is a Shabbos piece, Shabbat piece. The word everything is a catchword in Kabbalah. Ha-kol, ha-kol is a catchword in Kabbalah for Shabbat. Everything. Because everything flows into Shabbat. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Shabbat is the, the vessel, it's the pot at the end of the weekly rainbow, is Shabbat. Everything flows into Shabbat. And so everything, hakol, hakol in Hebrew, H-A-K-O-L, hey, chaf, lamin, hakol, everything aspires is the notion in Kabbalah that everything on Shabbat returns to oneness. It, we'll see this in, inside, that all of the worlds... This is the way the Kabbalists wanted us to imagine Shabbat. That as Shabbat, try to picture this. So it's, it's Thursday night, it's Arab Shabbat. Friday morning, Friday afternoon. As Shabbat begins to descend into the world, the world begins to ascend towards Shabbat. And in the, in the image of the Kabbalists, all of the world is ascending. Every world right, is ascending towards Shabbat as Shabbat is descending to the world. Which is another way of saying... What does it mean? What does that mean? Everything, everything returns to oneness. Everything is returning to oneness. It is returning to echad, to oneness. Which is another way of saying 
that everything in life is now, if you were to be a little bit more humanistic about it, that everything in life is being refracted through the prism, right? It's as if Shabbat is taking everything, taking my, my Tuesday pastrami sandwich, my business meeting in Hong Kong on Wednesday, my Friday morning coffee, and all of that now is being placed into Shabbat, and Shabbat is saying, I'm elevating everything. Because if everything is one, if everything is one, then Shabbat is blessing everything that happens during the week, and everything in the week is being blessed by Shabbat. And so on Shabbat, we don't fast, we eat. Shabbat, we, right, we sit around, with, we do all of these very physical things, we daven, we pray, all of these. Shabbat is a day for the um, refining and the defragmenting of all of those pieces of the week that are naturally fragmented. Right? That's the power, at least, that the Kabbalah is trying to say that Shabbat has. That everything is ascending, everything is rising, everything is aspiring, everything yearns to be transparently connected to a meaning or a purpose. Everything is yearning to be seen against the backdrop of a much wider sky. That's Shabbat. In, and that's why everybody, the most important prayer on Shabbat is L'cha Dodi. And the word L'cha, which means let us go, L'cha Dodi, L'cha is the same letters as Hakol, which means everything. Everything. And in the Shabbat morning prayers, right, people might not know this by heart, but Right after we do the Baruchu, Hakol Yoducha, Kol Yishabchucha, Kol Yonu Enka Adosh Kadeh Hakol, Yiroman Mufasela, Hakol, Hakol, everything is Hakol. And that's why the letters also, Hakol is the letters of Kala, which means bride. Likrat Kala. In that, in, in the very heteronormative, agreed, heteronormative worldview of the Kabbalists, uh, we, can, we can forgive them for their being heteronormative in the 13th century Spain and 14th century Spain. Um, the beloved other, the bride, is everything. Not in the sense that, um, that I lose myself. It means, and this is much more... So we said before that Shechina is the last Sviran, it's, it's feminine. So she becomes God's bride. And guess what? She walks around with a veil. Right? I'm, I'm watching... Uh, I'm in my weekday mind all the time. Because everything that's happening is happening, right, at discrete moments and discrete points along the time continuum, at discrete uh, coordinates. And I don't have my, my eyes of unity, my, my real eyes. I don't realize. And in the embrace of uh, this non-dual vision of Shabbat, everything is disclosed as the divine bride, but with wearing a veil, that I alone am charged with lifting. That's, you know, that's my role in the world is to... Is to to walk over to the bride that is called reality with a lowercase r and lifting the veil, see it as reality with a capital R. Right? I saw, I'm sorry, I thought you were my friend, you know, Eric. And meanwhile, I realize that you're just God in drag. <laughs> 
that's not my phrase. That's Hafiz. Says that. That's Hafiz, the great Persian poet. That's that's the way that that's the way the Kabbalists want to talk. So we're not. I hope everybody knows we're not talking Parsha tonight. I mean, we are in a second, but this is this is deep stuff. Right? This is not. This is stuff that people usually see in deep contemplative awareness. It's stuff when you're tripping a little bit, or if you or this is stuff that you read about in poets. This is the real reality, but that we often are not glimpsing. We get it at the end of a big Yom Kippur, you know, our hearts can show this to us, whatever it is. But you can get why at every, uh, at, at a wedding ceremony, the biggest moment in an orthodox, or ultra-orthodox wedding ceremony is, is for the groom to walk over to the bride and to lift the veil. And it's not because of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, that's, that's true, that's part of the story that Jacob was swindled, and so we check to make sure it's the right, you know. <laughs> right? That's, that's what everybody says, right? That's it. But in, in Kabbalah, every day is your wedding day. Certainly every Shabbos is a wedding day. Every Shabbos is a day when we lift the veil. And if we, again, if we want to be more humanistic about it without getting into this mystical stuff, we can say that the veil is that I, that I imagine that family is not the most important thing. Like during the week, I'm able to prioritize as a family or work. But on Shabbat, we say, no, it's family. You know, during the week, I can prioritize if it's relationship building that I need right now or career building or whatever the, my other priorities are. And on Shabbat, we come back to what's essential, what's true, what's, what's um, indestructible, indissoluble, right? So that's the image Rav Cook wants us to see is that everything is aspiring and what it means, though, is for all of us who are evolutionary theorists, is that not only did the world, right, those of you who were, we were looking at the, the spherot, and we were looking at them as a map of, uh, to some sense, devolution from the one to the many, in Rav Cook's way of looking at the world, there's the movement from the many to the one. And Shabbat is the pivot point where the many return to the one. So... When people have heard of the 13 petaled rose, so this book by Adin Steinsaltz, where did he get the number 13? 13 is a pretty important number, right? So six days of the week, and Shabbat is at the end of the week. But in Kabbalah, as you'll see next week, Shabbat's not at the end of the week. Shabbat's in the middle, between two weeks. Shabbat in the, in the medieval understanding of Shabbat, Shabbat receives the blessings and blesses back and blesses forwards. It stands in the center. It stands in the center receiving blessing and retrospectively, retroactively blessing what came before and blessing what's coming after. Or in other words, Shabbat is the best way to end your week and the best way to begin it. Right? That's the image at the end of Shabbat um, there's a traditional image of, of, a, of an, overco- uh, an overflowing cup that you make Havdalah, you separate between Shabbat and the rest of the week by pouring the, the wine into a cup that overflows. And guess what the overflow is supposed to symbolize? The Sfirot and the next week and all of that. It's all about this Shefa, this blessing and blessing and blessing, right? So, I want to connect this... Uh, to the Parsha this week, and, and then we'll stop. But it's really not fair, because we didn't start till it's 7.30. <laughs>
just want to say that we didn't start. We didn't start till seven thirty. Um, so Noach in this week's Torah portion is going to be in big trouble. Noah is in big trouble because God tells Noah, you, you better, man, you better get together because I'm about to bring some heavy stuff down. I'm going to be raining it down. And Noah's got a lot of time to get, to, to get his stuff together and, and to work it out. And it says that God walked with Noah. That God was walking with Noah. And the Midrash, the rabbis, they know that God walks with a lot of people in the Bible, in the beginning of the Bible. God walks with Noah, he walks with some other people, and he also walks with Abraham. So they take particular um, interest in the way that the verb walk is used with Noah. Because with Abraham, it says that God told Abraham to walk in front of him. But with Noah, it seems like God says, I'll walk with you. So that leads the rabbis into a very interesting conversation about what it would mean to have God walking in front of you versus having God walk with you. And they say that Noah was weaker than Abraham because he needed God to hold him up as he was walking. But, but Abraham could walk ahead. So there's a Rebbe who lived in the Warsaw Ghetto. His name was the Piazetzna Rebbe, the Rebbe of the Warsaw Ghetto of Plonimus Kalman Shapira from... Uh, it's the only... The only one, the only Rebbe, any, only Hasidic Rebbe who lived before the war, who left behind teachings, he buried them in a milk crate, and and, uh, and they were discovered by, by allies and sent to his brother in Israel, and in it he had manuscripts from, from teachings he gave to his Hasidim in the Warsaw Ghetto. So this teaching was from November 2nd, 1940. So literally 73 years ago, this coming Shabbos, he taught his Hasidim in the Warsaw Ghetto, this Torah. He said, he said, you know, there's something about the Jewish people called an Am Kshayorif, a stiff-necked people. Right? And God in the book of Exodus says to Moses, you know, they're so stiff-necked, I don't want to hang out with them anymore. You, you go, Moses, I'm done. Right? And then Moses' response is, no, God, you have to stay with the Jewish people. This is in the book of Exodus. You have to be with us because they're a stiff-necked people. So the Rebbe from Piazzetta says, how could the very reason that God gave for not wanting to be with us also be the reason that Moshe offers for why God should be with us? Because we're stiff-necked. God says, I don't want to be with them. They're too stiff-necked. Meaning, you know, I tell them to do one thing, they do another thing. No. And then Moses says, well, God, you should stay with them because they're stiff-necked. <laughs> so the Rebbe from Piazzetta said something very beautiful. He said, to be stiff-necked, which is biblical jargon for being stubborn, can go in so many different ways. He said, really, it's like every other quality in our lives, there's something very, very beautiful about this quality. That to be obstinate, or to be someone who is um, stubborn, he says, means that you're not a flip-flopper. Means that on the in the holy way of this quality, it means that you are you stay the course, right? You're stubborn, you're not changing, and then he says that's how God was before the world was created. 
before the world was created, he says, theologically, God is a stiff-necked God. The verse in Isaiah says, I am God, I don't change. He says, what does that mean? God doesn't change. It must be God stubborn. And in that quality of God's radical insofness, God doesn't change. Just like your soul, your soul, it, it won't ever change. You can only, you can only commit to, um, to honoring its, in its essence or, or not. Right. He says, Noach, Noach was, um, Noach was somebody that during difficult times he said he couldn't, he, he wasn't, uh, he was a change, he was a change agent in the wrong way. He was always changing. And Abraham had the strength, he said, to be stubborn. That's his Torah. It says, Moses, I'm sorry, Abraham walked ahead of God because God trusted that Abraham would stay the way. And Noah, God had to hold his hand because he was, every five minutes he wanted, he was, he was ducking out. He was like, okay, it's going to be too hard. I can't build this whole thing. You know, it's not going to work. So God had to hold his hand. It's like today I went with my son for his first day of school, you know. And, and he was great until they took him up to the roof and they left us down downstairs and then he lost it you know and I had to come up and hold him because he just couldn't he's not he doesn't have the vessels yet to hold that light it's not strong enough so he had a little breaking in the vessels so like he was like a little Noah I had to hold his hand because every you know he said originally wanted to go to school then he wasn't sure it was, he was and you know it, it was very cute but it was also really sad because because he didn't yet have the vessel he doesn't yet have that that the that quality of being able to stay the course. He's young, it's developmental, whatever. But the quality of being able to balance a holy obstinance with a holy flexibility really is a great way to begin the year. Right? That God in creating, in, the, in our God created the world in an act of great divine um, uh, vulnerability and acknowledgement of needing uh, both to remain unchanged in essence and to acknowledge the need for relationship as well. That's, that's what was happening. And that's essentially all of us. You know, there's parts of us that are always moving and, um, and there's something in us that, um, that we have, to, we have to, that is sealed away and has to be guarded um, in, in a way that, uh, that will honor its, its, its deep function, you know. So that's the first first class, everybody. It uh, I, I can't say it's going to get more intense because uh, this was already pretty intense, but it, it will get easier because these I, these ideas are, and these concepts are very fresh, and we need some time for them to uh, settle, to sink in a little bit, exactly. And uh, next week, so God willing, next Tuesday. We're gonna we're gonna really jump into Shabbat. So I'll give you a little preview, okay? Next week we're gonna start with the the verses in the Bible that discuss Shabbat. We're gonna move from the biblical conception of Shabbat into the rabbinic conception of Shabbat, and then we're gonna we'll come back to what we discussed today about Shabbat being the end uh, and the and the pivot point between the week, and um, and we'll see where it goes. Hopefully it'll, it'll go as long as it needs to go in terms of the year.